It's May 20th, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. So welcome to all those uh, new subscribers to the podcast. seems that a lot of people um, took on my request to uh, email others about the uh, the existence of the show, and uh, the numbers jumped up dramatically uh, after, uh, after the last episode. So I want to thank all of you uh, who are helping me to let other people know about the presence of, of the program. It's really very much appreciated. Um, I had a couple of emails regarding the, the blog site. I had activated the commentary uh, uh, function of, of, the, of the podcast, but I had required registration on there. And that was primarily just to eliminate all the spam that uh, you inevitably get when you have an open email or a, a commentary uh, link on, on a blog. But I'm going to uh, disable that. So if you have any comments about this show or any of the other previous shows, please feel free uh, to post any comments uh, freely on the blog. I'll just contend with whatever spamming uh, gets sent my way. And also, uh, as as well as um, requesting that uh, those who haven't uh, email someone about the show and let them know that they're the way around, I'd also love to see uh, some more commentary on the iTunes website or on the Yahoo uh, podcast uh, website. I have one comment up on iTunes right now, and I would just love to see uh, a little more commentary about uh, about the show and uh, individual episodes. I think um, when people are, are cruising uh, iTunes in particular to find a program about photography, I'd like to, to kind of have... Uh, some opinions up there to help spur people to to listen in on the show. But uh, thanks again for all the people who have been there from day one and all you new subscribers for for joining the show. It's really a lot of fun uh, putting it together. Uh, Today is going to be a first in that I have finally figured out how to use Skype and uh, the laptop to record phone conversations. Uh, Up until now, I've been limited in my interviews to people who are within my immediate area for, for live interviews. But now, uh, now that I've uh, learned how to use a Wiretap Pro, Skype, and my iBook to record conversations, I'm now going to be able to record uh, my interviews with photographers, irregardless of where they're located, not only in the United States, but anywhere in the world. And I'm particularly excited about that because there are several photographers who I have been keen on interviewing, and now I'm going to have the ability to do just that. Um, The first interview that I'm conducting is with Jeff Curto. Uh, He is a professor of photography at uh, DuPage College in Chicago, and he's also a uh, well-versed photographer who's been working on a project for over the last 15 years on Italy. Um, I'll have links to his podcast. He has two, one which is, which is on the history of photography and another one called Camera Position where he discusses more of the creative aspects of photography. Two podcasts that I highly recommend that uh, you, you check out. 
um, one for just great information regarding the over 150-year history of photography, which I think is always important for any photographer to, to, to learn about. But the other is really about a way of seeing. Oftentimes, um, we as photographers can get fixated on the equipment and and the whole idea that it's all about, you know, pressing down the shutter release button and creating the picture. And uh, Camera Position is a great podcast in that it really talks about um, what's happening behind the camera, what's happening between our eyes and inside our head when, when we're considering creating an image. And, and I think it's a great show. But uh, today, it's all about my show and our interview with Jeff Croton. Just thank you for agreeing uh, to be on the show. Happy to do it. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. I started off by listening to your history of photography class because I was always intrigued about you know learning, learning more about photography, and this was a great way to to sit in on a class <laughs> with my busy schedule. I, I really have gotten a lot out of it. I think it's a great show. Well, that's great. Or great, great class you know. as well. I wish I could sit well, in it. Well, but... you know, it's, it's, it's funny, too, because, you know, of course, I started uh, podcasting the history of photography class that I already teach, um, primarily for the benefit of students who might, you know, have missed a class or, uh, um, you know, needed to review some of the content. And uh, I put it up on the iTunes Music Store because, you know, it was easy then for students to subscribe to it and so forth and so on. And I, I really didn't imagine that I'd have uh, a whole bunch of listeners <laughs> listening to this thing all from literally all over the world. I've had email from people from uh, you know, Spain and Australia and New Zealand and you know, all these uh, you know, wild uh, places I never imagined people listening to it. So it's, it's been fun, and what's been really cool is the idea of opening up my classroom door to you know, really to the world. It's been a lot of fun to to have uh, uh, have that happen, and and even more interestingly, is what that's done for the students in the classroom. You know, they they're they're there because it's a required course in the program that I that I teach in. But uh, you know, when they see that there are people like you, you know, out in uh, out in the West Coast, you know, several thousand miles away from uh, where we are. Uh, <laughs> listening to this thing and, and you don't have to <laughs> you know they, they they tend to take me a little more seriously which is kind of fun so I think one of the exciting things I mean there's so much content in terms of photography out there uh, you know both in print and you know on 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 podcasts and such and but oftentimes there's not a real lot there's not much of an opportunity to hear about the history of photography outside of a, a classroom or, you know, maybe a trade journal. And right. And I think it really is providing a great service in that people are able to understand some of the, the trends in photography and some of the sort of the repetitions that, that occur in you know, over the 150 years of the, of the existence of photography, such as the manipulation of the image. Yeah, that's you know, it's always a big surprise to people. Um, you know, I, I I know it was a surprise to me when I was a student of photography. You know, I'd, I'd gotten turned on to you know, Jerry Yulesman's work, uh, this guy making these wild you know, dreamscapes out of uh, multiple images, and thinking, "Wow, how cool is that!" And 
you know, it wasn't until I started studying the history that I realized that there's you know, guys like Reichlander and Robinson doing this same kind of stuff back in the middle of the 19th century, you know, 120, 130 years before Yulesman did what, what he did and, and uh, you know, or continues to do. And, you know, then when you apply that to the manipulation of imagery that's so possible now with Photoshop and other kinds of digital technologies and how, you know, people keep thinking that, wow, this is really this new and amazing thing to be able to take this and move it over here. And really, photographers have been messing with the document for such a long time that, that uh, you know, we tend to forget that uh, what, what goes around comes around. So. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you specifically about your work that you've been doing in Italy. It started back mm -hmm. in, in uh, I think, in 1989, so you've been doing it for well over 15 years. But before I get to that, I'm just kind of curious as to how you got started in, in photography. Well, actually, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, you kind of, you know, fall into into something that you enjoy doing or something that fascinates you. Um, and, uh, you know, my my uh, my dad was, a, you know, a sort of an amateur photographer, not terribly a serious amateur photographer, but you know, he, he was interested in photography and he had, some camera equipment that uh, he had served in World War II, and he had some camera equipment he brought back from Germany, and and made photographs of uh, of me and my brother when we were uh, little. And uh, I remember specifically, and I've got a little piece on my on my website about this that I made uh, kind of a movie kind of a thing out of. But I, there was an event that that kind of transformed me, I think, uh, subconsciously at first, and then later as I as I thought about it as a, as a young adult, it really made sense to me. My brother and I had been out uh, fishing, and my brother had caught this fish, and, and he comes home to, uh, you know, to show off the fish to the family, and, and uh, my dad said, well, we've got to take a picture of this, of this catch, and tells my brother, you know, hold the fish way out in front of you uh, so that when we get the picture back, the fish will look bigger <laughs> relative to you. And I didn't really, I was, you know, my brother's uh, older than I am. I didn't really get it. And, but sure enough, the pictures come back from the drugstore or whatever, and, and uh, the fish looks just about as big as, as my brother. It was probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I was flabbergasted by the idea that photography could take this, you know, this fairly small fish and turn it into this, you know, giant whopper. And... I remember that being as this, this sort of turning point of, of being interested in the idea that this machine could help us, you know, could help us lie, <laughs> <laughs> and could help us, uh, you know, transform the world in a in a way that that you know, we didn't really think about right at first, and that it wasn't necessarily all about making a record, although it was it was you know it was both making a record and making this sort of exaggerated record all at the same time. So I remember that as this sort of uh, seminal event. And then uh, my dad uh, had, had had some old darkroom equipment that an uncle of his had given him. Uh, and, uh, you know, we set that up in the basement when I was a kid. And, you know, photo paper that you know, said, Don't, do not use after 1949. And, you know, I was born in 1959. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, we we played with that, and uh, you know, I just I got I got hooked into it. I got hooked into the whole idea of making pictures, and um, 
being able to document the things I saw around me and and begin to you know stretch those stretch those uh, stories into uh, into whoppers. So um, I I went all the way through high school, uh, you know, photographing for the student yearbook and the newspaper and all of that kind of stuff, and and eventually found myself in art school and uh, making photographs and and you know learning about other kinds of art forms but realizing that photography was the thing that I was most enamored with and and it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, that story of of the fish kind of speaks to a quote that I read on on your website where you say all my photographs are based on the medium's predilection to make a mountain out of a molehill. And for me that spoke to the whole concept that photography is more than a camera as being used as a documentary device but rather uh the photographer behind the camera as the manipulator, the controller of uh, where the viewer's gaze goes to. And um, in in looking at the images that you've, you've shot of Italy, I thought, I, I thought exactly of that because in the early history of, of photography, um, photographs of locations such as in Italy and Africa and other were used as sort of documentary device as being a window of opportunity for people to see a, a part of the world that they might never get a chance to see. And I think in your work, um, it's so much more than that. There is sort of, sort of, you get a sense of more of the experience of being, being in those places. That's, that's, you know, hopefully, and it's great. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you're getting that because that's part of my, part of my, my hope is that those pictures will do some of those kinds of things and, and give the viewer a sense of what it's like to be in those places. And, uh, you know, getting back to that mountain out of a molehill idea, I, I, I think that that's a, a basic tenet of the medium itself. You know, if you, if you think about, you know, pick, pick any great photograph from the history of the medium that you love, you know, be it a Stieglitz image or a Cartier-Bresson image or a, an Ansel Adams image or an Edward Weston image, you know, Strand, any of the any of the greats, and you pick any of those photographs that you just absolutely are are head over heels with uh, in terms of the visual power and authority of the image, and you, if you you sort of trace it back to the root of it, you know, it's it's not really that big a deal about what it is that that the picture is of. You know, if it's uh, you know, Strand's uh, gravestones or you know, Adam's uh, clearing winter storm or any of those, you know, any of those great sort of masterpieces of the medium, uh, they really aren't that. The, the things that we're taking pictures of really aren't that big a deal, but it's they become a big deal because we pay attention to them and we celebrate those objects. And the, the sort of ordinariness of those objects, we celebrate those things and, and elevate them to some uh, some higher degree. And I think what I've been trying to do in Italy over, uh, as you mentioned, a fairly long period of time is look at these objects that, in many cases, were made uh, you know, sort of uh, in this vernacular idea of uh, enhancing one's surroundings by. Uh, Creating something uh, that is that is greater than than what was there already, or the attempt to create something that was greater than what was there already, and and uh, really just celebrating the beauty of of the simplicity of those objects, and trying to to convey a sense of 
or objects and places and, and trying to convey a sense of what that what that experience of standing in that place is like um, relative to the the effect of light and shadow and and time so one of the things sort of that, what I'm aiming at one I'm of, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry no I'm, I'm all done okay. <laughs> with that idea <laughs> when you when you started this uh, project, you didn't realize you were you were starting a project. Um, but when did you realize that that you were doing this? And and also, what do you think is the importance of, of a photographer working on a, on a long term project like the one that you are doing now? Um, well, you know, you're right in that when I when I first started this thing, I had no idea that I would be still working on a similar, on the same project, really, but, but with a sort of a different focus than I, than I started in 1989. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think I began to realize that it was something bigger than just uh, a guy going to Italy with a large format camera a couple of times, probably in, in, uh, on the third trip that I took, um, it was 89 and then 90 and then 92, and it was really then when I began to realize that, that what I was photographing, what I was drawn to, had this sort of uh, similar quality, that I was aiming at things that were timeless. I was kind of uh, moving, moving people physically out of the frame so that, so that uh, people were not a part of the, uh, a part of the process of what I was, uh, what I was looking at. Uh, so I think it was probably fairly early on, but it really wasn't until the middle of the 1990s that I felt like I started to hit a stride in terms of producing work that was really accomplishing what I wanted it to do. And I, I think that, you know, and, it, and it's it, it, relative to long-term projects, you know, I've, I've been uh, teaching photography for a pretty long time. I started teaching photography in 1984 and have continued to do it uh, since then. And... Uh, that's my my day job, my full time uh, uh, full time gig. Um, and in teaching photography, I've noticed that students uh, tend to start out with this sort of shotgun approach to photography. They take pictures of things that they think are interesting, or uh, in in many cases, they take pictures of things that they think their instructors will think are interesting which is sort of a frustration that, that we teachers uh, experience, that you know, the student will, will try to work toward the idea of making an interesting photograph by, uh, you know, by, by trying to please their instructor. And, and ultimately, what we try to help them understand that, is that making an interesting photograph is about making photographs of things that you think are interesting. Um, and, and I guess my long-term project just keeps coming back to the fact that I love Italy. I love the things that I find there. Uh, I love the culture. I love the way in which the culture has operated for this you know, hugely long period of time. And that you're standing in the middle of a of a vineyard and, and you look out at this you know, sort of pastoral bucolic landscape and you realize that you know it's it's not uh, it, it's not this sort of pristine place that you thought it was. You know, people have been working this land for hundreds and if not thousands of years in, in many cases. So um, the idea that that you, know, you start out with something that you're interested in and then just keep doggedly pursuing it to narrow that focus. 
until you really understand what it is that, that you're trying to accomplish. And for some people, that long-term project might be a month. Uh, for some people, the long-term project might be a week. Uh, for some people, the long-term project might be, as in my case, you know, a decade and a half or, or more. Um, before you begin to recognize what what that uh, point of focus is and what it is that you're trying to accomplish with that point of focus. And what I've discovered is that uh, what I, while I started out with this sort of one idea kind of thing, what it's divided up into is several smaller ideas that all surround a much larger idea. And, and that larger idea, I think, is, is about uh, people celebrating uh, their surroundings by creating things that that uh, enhance the, the natural beauty that that's around them uh, by by creating structures and and uh, working spaces, whether the working space is a farm or a building, that uh, that are both beautiful and functional. So I think that the idea of being able to make a uh, a project over a long period of time is one that's instructional. Um, for the photographer in terms of what it is that they're interested in. What do, you, what do you do? What do you like? What do you want to say? I think what's very fascinating about, about the work is that even though you don't have um, people in the picture, you nevertheless get a, very, a, a sense of, of humanity in, in the photographs, even of the, of, of the landscapes, because you know, even though they're you know beautiful landscapes, say of, of of sunflowers, you realize that you know man's hand was in that, and I think it's very interesting that that despite the fact there isn't a human figure in the in the in the photograph, you still get a strong sense of that. Well, that's 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 great to hear. I'm glad I'm glad that's coming across because that's that's really kind of uh, an, an awful lot of of the thing that I'm interested in is the hands of these people who have made these things and uh, you know their hands and their minds and what it is that they're interested in in trying to accomplish uh, both the you know the the mind that thought up the building or that thought up the idea of uh, you know planting these things here um, in the landscape uh, and the actual laborers who accomplish the task of making the object and or or sculpting this landscape in a particular way to accomplish a particular task and and that uh, and I didn't I have to admit that I didn't realize that that's what I was looking at right off the top uh, and you know, I, I also began to then realize that what I had to do was not only study the history of, of Italy but also the history of its architecture and uh, you know begin to uh, be able to be educated about you know, not only who did this and, and how they did it, but why they did it and, and what the history of that uh, that strategy of constructing buildings and, and uh, uh, making uh, farming landscapes that, that worked in a certain way. And you, know, it's, it, you, you, can't, uh, you can't look at a landscape in, in, uh, in a country as, as old and with a, as varied a history as Italy has, has had and not recognize that uh, you know, you're, you're certainly not A, the first person to photograph it, and B, the first person to look out at it and consider it beautiful. And so you have to figure out something to, uh, to say uh, that, that uh, is your own voice and your own, your 
own way of sort of saying something that's new. How does as, as hard as that might be? How does using the the wide, uh, you know, the large format camera provide you just that opportunity to be able to see, you know, the world that you're shooting in in, in, a, in, a, in a different way than photographers that have come before you or from you know the dozens or hundreds of photographers that are around you shooting with you know 35 millimeter film and digital camera. Well, I, I think that, you know, the large format camera, and I use a 4x5 camera, um, boy, it does a whole lot of stuff for me. Uh, one is it slows me down uh, in, a, in a physical way. You know, I, I'm carrying around a lot of stuff. So it slows me down. This stuff is heavy. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's cumbersome. Um, but it slows me down in terms of output as well. So I'm much more... I think thoughtful about what it is that I photograph and how that I how I photograph that stuff. Um, so that's that's one. Uh, I think that slowing me down uh, in a, in that physical way also slows me down mentally. And you know, I, I had mentioned earlier that I'm a I'm a teacher nine months out of the year, uh, college teach college photography and. Uh, the it's a you know it's a, a busy hectic life and and uh, you know lots of students and, and I help administer the program so I have a lot of you know kind of uh, you know, busy work kinds of things to do and so forth and so on so being able to slow down physically in the summer also allows me to slow down mentally and and uh, you know take stock of of my own thoughts and ideas and and uh, so forth so. Uh, on you know on the one level it's slowing down physically on another level I think it's slowing down mentally and you know those people who have used a large format camera uh, and looked through that uh, large ground glass viewing screen under a dark cloth know that it's a very different experience from you know, squinting through a 35 millimeter camera eyepiece it it, uh, it tends to be an immersive experience you climb under the dark cloth and you're all by yourself um, no matter how many hundreds or thousands of people are around you and uh, you know there's something very wonderfully uh, sort of escapist I guess about that um, and then you know the other thing is that that the large format camera boy it has it has just been a tremendous device for me to differentiate myself from as you as you say all the other photographers who are you know, hundreds or thousands of photographers around me with point-and-shoot cameras and digital cameras and film cameras and all kinds of cameras. Uh, I'm clearly different. Uh, I'm clearly the, you know, this other kind of photographer. Uh, and that has allowed me uh, kind of entree into a, a whole set of, uh, of places and meeting with people and people asking me, what are you doing and how old is that camera? And in fact, <laughs> it's not really that old, you know, but... Uh, uh, but uh, the idea of meeting people because I'm making pictures with this device, and you know, have you seen this place, and have you done this, and have you, you know, have you come here, and uh, you know, let me see what kinds of work you've done, and you know, I usually carry around a few samples so that people can see what it is that I'm that I'm up to. So. You know, there is this. You know, the fact that I, that the fact that I'm a guy with this big wooden camera, um, under a dark cloth with a big tripod, making a big deal out of, you know, making a picture of, of something, uh, conveys a sense that that I'm, uh, I, I, you know, 
it, I, I don't know that I'm any more serious than any other photographer with any other kind of camera, but it sure looks like I am to the average Joe who's, uh, or Giuseppe who's walking by uh, and, and uh, seeing me make a photograph. And so I, I've met a lot of people. I've given a whole lot of view camera lessons uh, in the field to people. You know, here's how you look through it, and here's why it's upside down, and all of that other kind of stuff that, that goes along with the view camera. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been, and, and you know, the, to, to get down to the particulars of it, I use it because I get a great big negative, um, but for me it, it actually goes well beyond that idea of the great big negative, uh, and it goes to the sort of core of slowing down and enjoying the, the lifestyle that, uh, that, that, that the Italian people enjoy, especially in the summertime, which is when I am uh, generally there, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great combination of my approach to photography and this great, wonderful device that I get to use. So um, I don't know if that answers the question. No, it, it does. One of the things I wanted to hear about is I know when I am come upon a scene and I'm, I'm responding to either light or color or, or contrast is that I'll take my camera and I'll explore it, you know, changing my position, changing focal length, um, shooting as I'm exploring, exploring a scene, and I may shoot dozens and dozens of images, you know, to sort of refine my particular take on it. But with, you know, large format, you don't have the benefit of frame after frame to, to explore a scene. So how do you come to the point where you've determined, okay, this is the position that I'm going to shoot from, this is the lens I'm going to use, this is... You know, well, you know, and uh, I actually, uh, I just did a podcast about this, um, at least part, partly about this. Um, you know, part of it, obviously, is A, just finding a subject, uh, like you mentioned, that, you know, I'm interested in the light or I'm interested in this, you know, the, the way light is falling on this object or, you know, the, the particular qualities of the place or, or something. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, in terms of, of making a photograph, uh, you know, with, where, where a 35-millimeter photographer might have the camera up to his eye and uh, be sort of doing the, the, the bob and weave and you know, try to get up, get down, uh, look all around at what it is that you're looking at, and maybe fire off a half a dozen frames as you do so. Um, the large format photographer, I think you know, we, will, we will tend to, to stalk the subject a little bit more carefully, uh, more, like, uh, more like a pool player, you know, kind of... Uh, lining up the shot and making sure that the one shot that you're going to get is the one that you really, really want. Although, I, you know, having said that, I, I have often made a number of different pictures of a similar subject just to kind of uh, you know, work that idea of, uh, of that subject a little bit more. But um, I, I often use, uh, and I, again, I just did this podcast about this just this past week um, because somebody had asked on, on my... Uh, my camera position podcast, somebody had asked about a similar, sort of a similar question. And I used this cardboard cutout frame, an 8 by 10 inch piece of cardboard with a 4 by 5 inch rectangle cut out of the, uh, the middle of it. And I used that to uh, sort of be the surrogate camera so that I don't have to always get the camera out of the bag uh, to find out whether there is or isn't a photograph uh, that's worth making in this particular location. So uh, I used this cardboard cutout and... Uh, uh, to sort of use it as a as a frame to kind of eliminate the things in the uh, in the scene that that I want to uh, get rid of, and I've I've long thought of 
photography as being more of an editorial kind of process than a creative process. We don't actually, I suppose there are photographers who make, uh, you know, start with a blank canvas and place things in front of the lens uh, in a still life kind of fashion, but the way most of us work is by starting with the whole world and getting rid of the stuff that doesn't count. So this frame helps me get rid of the things that I, uh, that I don't need, and then uh, uh, I've attached, uh, this is, I, I always like to attribute this to uh, the guy who uh, was my mentor when I was a, a graduate student, a, guy, a great photographer named Neil Rappaport, who unfortunately passed away in a, a couple of years, well, five years ago, I guess now. Uh, but uh, he came up with the idea of attaching a string, uh, or at least you know, he came up with it as far as I know, uh, relating it to me, attaching a string to this cardboard cutout uh, and uh, tying knots in the string at the various uh, focal length uh, of lenses, so you know, 120 millimeters and 210 millimeters. And uh, you can get with that uh, the knots and the string held between the bridge of your nose and the, the, uh, the piece of cardboard. You can get a pretty good idea of how much or how little a particular focal length of lens will show of that particular scene. Um, so I, I do tend to kind of plan it out uh, prior to the time that I actually start to get the camera out of the bag and, and I have a pretty good idea of how high or how low I'm going to be and left or right positioning and, and all of that kind of stuff uh, before I really get to the point of, of making a photograph. And obviously once I'm looking through the camera, there will be adjustments of uh, you know, sometimes a matter of uh, you know a few inches this way or that or sometimes a matter of you know a few yards this way or that but uh, at least I've uh, done some of the some of the heavy lifting of uh, of, of getting the, the basic idea of the picture down before I uh, before I get the camera out of the bag one of the things that people kind of I, I in speaking to people about photography so many get the get the idea thinking about the the picture in terms of the moment that the picture is actually taken, you know, from the moment that the shutter release button is, is depressed. Mm -hmm. But really the photograph has been, and it continues to always be, an issue about the print. And I wanted to hear about your, your process in terms of printing your images, uh, particularly since you're working with a, um, you know, with a large format negative, in terms of how that plays into you expressing what you want in terms of your photograph, in terms of the reaction that you want to, to you know, invoke in people when they take a look at your at your print. Well, that's you know that's that's also an interesting uh, an interesting question. I think in terms of the longevity of this project, you know, I started this thing in 1989, and uh, uh, I started using uh, Adobe Photoshop uh, software not too much longer after that, but um, you know, really, uh, as we all know, that uh, in the you know, the early '90s, Photoshop was really useful um, as long as you had uh, good input sources and so forth and so on. But the primary use for it, in terms of uh, uh, fine art photography, was uh, was was fairly limited. Uh, we didn't really have a, a way to to output images easily and so forth and so on. And so, in the early years of this project. Uh, everything that I did was photographed on black and white film, and, and you know, I'm uh, fairly adept at controlling 
contrast and so forth using those, you know, age-old uh, Ansel Adams uh, kind of controls of the zone system and so forth. But uh, and and making traditional darkroom prints and and uh, I'd gotten. Uh, I think also reasonably adept at making traditional black and white silver prints in the darkroom. Um, but it wasn't until maybe, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago when uh, inkjet output technologies got good enough uh, for me to be able to start translating the ideas of, of uh, that, that I wanted to convey in high-quality black and white inkjet output. And the beauty of that is not so much the output itself, although I think uh, inkjet output now has reached a state where it is, uh, in fact, quite beautiful, different from a silver print in many ways. Um, but I think uh, using some of the con contemporary current technologies uh, uh, and, and contemporary printers, it's possible to make very beautiful black and white prints using inkjet technology. And uh, uh, but the, the real beauty of it is the control afforded by Photoshop to very accurately control tone. Uh, and where in the darkroom, um, using traditional chemical methods and dodging and burning and changing developer time and temperature and type and dilution and paper uh, brand and so forth and so on, uh, we could accomplish a fairly large amount of stuff, but not nearly as much as we can accomplish with Photoshop in terms of subtly altering just that tone in this tiny square uh, two inches of the uh, of the frame, uh, and being able to manipulate the way the viewer sees things in a in an absolutely uh, perfect way. Uh, and you know the the idea uh, you know for those those people who might be listening who are cringing at the idea of manipulating how the viewer sees things. I mean, we've been manipulating how the viewer sees things in photography for forever, since the beginning of the medium. And it's just with Photoshop that we begin to have this, uh, this absolute control over exactly where this tone shift occurs, uh, or in color images where, you know, where colors appear or don't appear, and how vibrant they are or how non-vibrant they are. Um, but in terms of black and white photography, I really feel like I can make a more full expression of what I saw or what I felt uh, at the time that I made the photograph by scanning my large format negatives on a high quality scanner. And fortunately, I uh, work at an educational institution where we have uh, really high quality uh, Imacon scanners, and so I'm able to produce really high resolution, very, very detailed, uh, you know, great uh, uh, gamma in terms of light to dark kinds of scans, and then take those into Photoshop and, and then output them. Uh, currently, my output device is an Epson 4000 printer that I'm using uh, Roy Harrington's Quad Tone Rip, which is an amazing product um, that is able, has allowed me to produce uh, what I think are the greatest expression of what I've been able to do uh, on a physical level, um, far better uh, in terms of the expression that I was able to make of these images in the black and white darkroom, and uh, uh, you know I think it it's uh, it, it's an amazing set of technologies, um, you know, and, and it's kind of weird. It's kind of this hybrid thing. Here I am with this wooden four by five camera shooting black and white tri-X film, um, but then taking the the next steps once it's developed through the the scanning process and then outputting digitally. So, 
it, it's uh, and 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 that transformation has occurred over the time that I've been doing this project, and you know I have these. Uh, you know, these older prints that are in silver that I think are are beautiful, but um, I'm really a lot more interested and excited about the the quality that I'm getting out of inkjet now. Yeah, I'm revisiting some negatives that I shot about 15 or 20 years ago that really haven't even um, printed traditionally, and I just put them into a scanner this week just to see what I would get, and it was amazing what I got just from the start. You know, some of the images were very high contrast and. And when they pull them up in the negative, the amount of detail I was able to retain throughout the entire tonal range was just surprised me. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of like, well, you know, astonishing that we can get that much uh, that much detail uh, out of out of these scanning devices. So much more than so much greater range of tone, <clears throat> excuse me, than we could ever get in uh, in the darkroom. Um, you know, even the the most skilled printmaker. Um, really doesn't stand a chance against uh, a really high-quality scanner that can pull detail out of shadows where the traditional photographic processes uh, would tend to compress that detail and uh, you know, really kind of bury a lot of it. But um, So it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the things i like to end the, our conversations with is by asking uh, photographers to recommend another photographer whose work uh, our listeners can, you know, listen to, uh, I mean, go and check out their work. And I'm kind of want to ask you the question, who, what one photographer would you recommend that people run out and, and uh, investigate? Gosh, that's a great, that's such a great question, especially because you didn't tell me about the question beforehand, so I have <laughs> to make up the answer on the, on the fly, because there are so many, um, so many that I, that I really love. But I, you know, I, and my, my students often hear me talk about my, Desert Island photographers. I think I, in the history of photography uh, class, I spent some time talking about those Desert Island photographers, uh, and those are those photographers that if you had to go away to a desert island and you, you could only uh, you know take a, uh, a couple of photographers' work uh, with you to you know to sustain you over a period of time. You know, usually it's done with music, but uh, I like to do it with photography. And certainly, my uh, my my top select would be uh, Eugene Atje, the great uh, French photographer of Paris and the environs around Paris from the uh, the turn of the the nineteenth to the twentieth century, early early twentieth century work, most of it. And um, uh, I, I think uh, because as uh, as as John Zarkowski uh, once said that you know what made Eugene Atje great is that he knew where to stand. And uh, certainly, his ability to figure out a composition uh, for a given scene and uh, invest that composition with this sort of sensitivity um, is uh, is top in my in my book. So, if I only had to choose one, I would choose Ot J. Uh, if I had to choose, if I got to choose two, I'd probably add uh, Paul Strand in there uh, for uh, for a number of reasons, um, both because he knew how to how to figure out where to stand, and also because he uh, had this uh, sensitivity to humanity that I think was uh, was remarkable. So, so I, I modified your question. I picked two. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. You know, I think I think it's really important that any photographer look beyond their own generation of photographers to 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 look at images. So I'm really great. I'm very uh, glad to see that uh, that you've chosen those two, but. 
Thanks so much, uh, Jeff. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time this this morning to uh, to talk with me. Well, thank you, Abernix. It was it was great to talk to you, and I'm very flattered to have been asked and uh, uh, have enjoyed all of the interviews that you've done, and and uh, look forward to, to hearing a lot more. So, right. uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. So, uh, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for joining me. Believe me, I was so relieved to, to see that uh, that the whole setup recorded our conversation uh, well enough to be able to post. I'm sure kind of nervous there for a while. But uh, I hope you enjoyed the program. And if you have any comments about this or any other episode, feel free to email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or visit us at uh, thecandidframe.com. Until next time, this is Ivarian X. Barella. This is the end.